0: Listener-supported, WNYC Studios. I
1: wanted the candidates who made that final turn in the road, who got to the point where they could say, not only should I be president, I am going to be president. I have tried to tell their stories in two ways. As fairly as I could from the outside and as empathetically as I could from behind their eyes. In doing so, I have tried not only to show them, but to show what our politics is like, what it feels like to run for president, what it requires from them, what it strips or rips from them. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Like a lot of my colleagues who cover politics, my favorite political book of all time is that one, What It Takes by Richard Ben Kramer. Now, a 1,000-plus page book about the 1988 presidential campaign does not sound like a sizzling read, I know. But what makes it so compelling, even now, is the way in which Kramer reveals the humanity of politics. The candidates are full-rounded creatures with complicated backstories full of tragedy, success, and blind spots. Today, politics talk is a lot about data. There's polling and analytics and algorithmic models. And it often feels like there's this push to take the unpredictable and the messiness out of politics. The best political reporting and analysis is a mix of the empirical and the emotional. Candidates aren't just a series of talking points and policy papers, and voters aren't always perfectly rational creatures. So what does this have to do with the show today? Well, I have felt very unsatisfied with the way in which politics in the time of this pandemic has been covered. We have a lot of data about how Americans think about their political leaders and how they're handling this crisis, or what activities they will and won't feel comfortable doing. But what we aren't hearing enough about is the ambiguity and internal conflict that so many people are feeling. I really wanted to understand not just what people say they're worried or not worried about, but how people assess risk. I also wanted to understand how a pandemic, something that theoretically should be a national unifier is dividing us along familiar political lines. Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist and professor of ethical leadership at New York University's Stern School of Business. He's also the author of Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And he's spent a lot of time thinking about what brings people together and what drives us apart.
0: So there's a lot of evidence, not just from history, but even from social psychology experiments, that a comment, that an attack by a foreign adversary binds people together, draws them together. Uh, there's research by uh, Joe Henrich at Harvard and others that um, even people whose countries were at war when they were teenagers, they're more cooperative in, in economic games 20 years later. So foreign attack, we know, has this powerful effect. But this is not a foreign attack. Conversely, a pandemic, historically, doesn't bring people together. It makes them afraid of each other. Uh, others are sources of contagion. And especially if there's starvation, then they're, it's really you know zero-sum game. Thank God we're not starving and, and this disease is not so deadly. So this is not like a classic pandemic either. It's in between those two. And we started off much more with a sense of unity, but now we're into the more divided phase.
1: We are separating ourselves into two camps really ideologically, Republicans feeling one way and Democrats the other. Why it does it break down so cleanly along
0: those lines? Well so the so the first a piece of nuance I'd add to that, is you, with politics in America these days, you always have to distinguish between what the average person thinks, mm-hmm. which we have no idea of on, other than survey data, and what we see on social media and mainstream media. And the media environment has changed so much since the mid-20th century with cable TV and then especially with social media. Um, and basically, you know, America's has been a pretty moderate country historically, But the the extremes now have a megaphone. We've amplified the voices from the extremes. So, you know, the survey research shows that most Americans, if it's a question about Donald Trump, yes, they're totally divided. But if it's a question about the pandemic, on average, you know, there's a lot of agreement. But that's not what we see. So what we see in terms of lockdown protests and things like that, yeah, it's incredibly divided. Um, And that is because we have this really bad culture war. We have this negative partisanship in which our politics is much more about who we hate than about what we like. And unfortunately, the pandemic played right into that here. I, I think Britain's going to have a better pandemic than we will.
1: You mean a better response to the pandemic?
0: Well, I mean, mean, yeah, I mean, if, if if this pandemic is somewhere in between a foreign attack and a classic pandemic, you know, then good leadership um, good leadership uh, can really bring people together. Now, I'm not, I'm not opining on on uh, Boris Johnson, but you know, the having a queen. There is actually evidence that constitutional monarchies are more stable than republics because having some unifying national figure like the queen, who has just spoken so beautifully about this, is unifying. And boy, do we lack that in America.
1: Except, there is this one thing, which is governors almost across the board, are seeing real spikes in their popularity. And this Mm -hmm. is true if you're a blue governor in a red state or a red governor in a blue state. The one person who opinions of haven't changed at all is Donald (laughs) Trump. So is this really a Donald Trump issue or is this our partisan politics issue?
0: So let me put in a little bit of of social and evolutionary psychology Mm -hmm. here, which is, that human beings have this amazing form of sociality. So, um you know, deer are not actually really that social. They just kind of flock together in herds so that the you know only the slowest one gets eaten. Um, bees at the other end of the spectrum are hive creatures. They have to live in hives and they cooperate like crazy. I mean it's the hive is really like the, the animal. Humans are different. we're we're in between. We're really flexible. So we can come together at whatever level is needed, whatever level is attacked, And so we have this recursive structure. Um, After Pearl Harbor, you know, you get the whole country coming together to fight the, you know, the absolutely perfect evil enemy. Um so you know pearl harbor brought us together at the national level and and with our allies uh, but we have this ability to come together or separate at multiple levels even at the same time so we're not coming together nationally uh, anymore since mid april i think that's when things really split up um but we can come together at the state level and then we could be divided on some other level and then we can come together in a you know in a company or in a church community so you have to look at different levels of sociality nested together and it's a fascinating time to be a social scientist.
1: Well, it absolutely is because it the, the real question I, I, I wanted to get some understanding about is how this exposes the way that human beings assess risk. Mm-hmm. And what are those differences? How does somebody wake up in the morning and say, oh, there's no, I'm not leaving my house, mm-hmm. uh, maybe for years. And a person who lives right next door to me says, this is, this is not a big deal. I don't need to wear a mask. I'm fine. Just let me do what I want to do. Can you speak to some of that? Like how sure. the, the brain is sort of processing these risks and and how you think then that's going to impact the way we actually move through this crisis.
0: So I always find it helpful to start with the assumption that we're perfectly rational information processors, and then you see how far away reality is from that <laughs> assumption. So let's start with the, you know the idea that we're perfectly rational, and and all we care about is achieving the optimum outcome for ourselves. Well, there's a whole huge field in cognitive psychology that's looked at all the biases, the errors we make, and so, you know, we're afraid of plane travel if a plane crashes, Uh, but, you know, we're not so afraid of of traveling by car, uh, because it's not as salient, it's not as vivid. Um, So, that's just taking each person as an individual risk assessor, and there's like 30 or 40 different biases. There's a huge amount of research on how individuals get it wrong. Okay, but now let's really mess things up. Let's make those individuals social. And so we we we're incredibly social creatures. We look to everyone else to see what to do. So, you know, I'm here in New York, I teach at NYU, and I remember when I w- you know when I was riding the subway like back when this was beginning, you know, I brought a mask with me, but I felt stupid. I felt foolish being the only one wearing it, so I didn't wear it. And then there was like one day when it flipped and then, you know, most people were were wearing it. So that so here we're social, but not yet tribal. We just care what others think of us. And then let's go to the third level, like, you know, DEFCON 3 for social biases, which is now let's add in my, my group versus yours, team versus team. And there's a war on, and it's a war for the survival of whatever we hold sacred. And so um, if your side says, oh, the virus is nothing to worry about. Well, that's going to make me say what? What about all this other evidence? You're wrong, you know. Or if, or if you know, if your side says, um, you know, oh, we, you know, we've got to lock down, we've got to stop all, you know, all social activity, um, then I'm going to say what? What are you talking about? What about Sweden or whatever? So, um, so we're incredibly social creatures, and I think the key to understanding the the craziness and this destructiveness and the foolishness of the American response. I mean, there's a lot of institutional failures, but if you want to look at the weirdness of the way people are are reacting. I would say look at those different levels of, of sociality that warp our thinking about risk.
1: So in an ideal setting then, how would a leader respond to this?
0: So there you know there's a huge amount written on leadership and I'll, I'll just make a couple points that are related to what we've been saying so one of the most important principles and you see this in every you know leadership book or article is you must be completely transparent honest and reliable um, it's hard to gain trust and it's easy to lose it and so the fiasco about recommending that people not wear masks um, by various organizations you know even th- that was really foolish I think that cost a lot of credibility that's just an example of the sort of thing that you should not do um, you know, if they did it for the ulterior motive of preserving the masks for doctors, I understand why they did it, but I think it was very damaging. So you have to be completely honest and transparent. And, you know, that's where I think at the national level, uh, certainly the, that leader has gotten very, very bad marks, whereas many of the governors have gotten very high ratings on that. Um, and then the other really, really key thing is it, you are the best place person to activate the one for all, all for one response. So I said before that we're like hive creatures where we can be like bees in a hive. And we love that. We love to be called together, uh, to come together to work on some noble project. And so If the leader uh, uses elevating language and speaks to our noble ideals um, and emphasizes our shared history and we're all in the same boat, we're going to work together to a glorious future. And I just said in a very ineloquent way exactly what Queen Elizabeth said to the British people last month. So leadership should be inspiring. It should be honest. It should put aside, specifically put aside petty squabbles, speak to people's nobler motives.
1: And yet this nobler motive, right, this gets to the very heart, it seems to me, what it means to be an American, this idea of freedom from and freedom to, right? Mm-hmm. I, I yeah. want a freedom from getting sick, which means I need you, Jonathan, not to sneeze on me or mm-hmm. to come to work if you're sick, but I also need freedom to do what I want, right? If I, if I want to ride without a seatbelt or if I want to smoke or do those things, I should be able to do them.
0: We all have the same moral foundations, that is, just like we all have the same five different kinds of taste receptors on our tongue, and then different cultures create different cuisines that play differently on the tongue, it's, it's the same thing with our moral sense. We all have built in a, a, a sensitivity, a receptivity, to stimuli or arguments about care, fairness, liberty, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. We all have those it's like the taste buds of the moral sense and there are differences some people are born You know with with extra sensitivity to care and they're really sensitive to you know animal suffering when they're kids Um, And those people tend to be attracted more to left-wing causes and left-wing movements tend to emphasize care suffering pain things like that empathy Um, So there are some reasons why individuals even siblings in the same family will gravitate one way or another but then there's a whole level of manipulation by moral entrepreneurs. So all Americans believe in freedom, you know, as you were saying, you can spin it either way. All Americans believe in freedom, but it's only once some, you know, some talking head or some activist or somebody on, on a cable news show says, you know, I have a God-given right to, you know, this is America, how you can't make me wear a mask or or whatever it is, you know, it happens on both sides. But that's what a lot of politics is, especially the age of social media, whoever comes up with the stickiest, uh, most alluring construction between the issue that they want to manipulate you on and your innate moral foundations, that's the construction that will spread. And so we're witnessing that happening in hyperdrive nowadays.
1: Well, Jonathan Haidt, I could talk with you about this forever. But unfortunately, I hope we, we won't have to. Have to it but short. my
0: God, it, this might go on forever.
1: This could go on forever. Let me just let me end it with this question about your optimism for where we end up on this. You always end your talks with a little silver lining, or at least a little kernel of hope. Do you still see that now as we're navigating our way through this process about? how this moment in time might change the way in which we do or see politics.
0: I do see some some glimmers of hope. I, the best way I can say it is that I've been incredibly pessimistic about our future for the last five years or so. The trends for our democracy have been downward, and I, and I saw no way forward. And I would just cling to the hope that You know, current trends never continue, things are going to change. And I would say in in my public talks, I'd say, you know, I'm sorry, this has been a really pessimistic talk, but you know what? Um, It's always been wrong to bet against America, and present trends never continue forever. So something's going to happen. It could be something great, it could be something terrible, but something's going to happen that's going to change things. And well, guess what? That something is happening. And, you know, right now, the signs are not necessarily that it's going to lead to any kind of civic rebirth, but boy, is it changing things that seemed unchangeable. So, you know, I'm not necessarily optimistic right now, but I actually see more paths forward than I did four months ago. There are gonna be big generational changes. I think millennials and Gen Z will be changed by this in ways that could end up making them um, um, better citizens or more involved in democracy in positive ways. Um, It is complicated and I can't predict anything specific, but at least there's going to be change. And given the trajectory we were on, (laughs) change is good.
1: Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I really, really appreciate it.
0: My pleasure,
2: Amy.
1: We just heard from Jonathan Haidt about how human beings assess risk and how our politics influences our behavior. To see how the sociology tracks with public opinion, I called
3: Lynn Vavrick, Professor of American Politics and Public Policy at UCLA.
1: Lynn is also a lead at the Nationscape Research Collaboration, and since July 2019, the Nationscape has been conducting weekly surveys to track opinions of the electorate. Back in March, they decided to add some questions related to COVID-19, taking great care with how they worded those questions.
3: One of the things that's tricky about writing survey questions to assess people's beliefs and attitudes and fears and anxieties and get good behavioral reports in the wake of COVID is that this crisis is becoming politicized. And in the beginning, maybe it was less so, but it is becoming more and more so. And I think as we roll into the presidential election, this is going to become even more partisan. You can put respondents in a frame of mind that allows them to answer from, you know, through their partisan lens, so to speak, or you can try to put them in the frame of mind to get them out of viewing the world as a Republican or a Democrat. So that one of the the questions that you just mentioned, would you be likely to go to a restaurant, go to a store, a sporting event, ride a bus? We really spent a lot of time thinking about how to set people up for that question. And Mm -hmm. what we ask them, we say, if restrictions were lifted on the advice of public health officials to do the following, how likely would you be to dot, 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 fly on an airplane, go to a wedding. So we really want to put people in the psychological space of public health officials who for the most part are nonpartisan, say it's okay to go you know, to Target or Walmart or wherever you shop. Would you do it? And still we're finding that large shares of the population are saying, I wouldn't do that even if public health officials told me it was okay to do. In contrast to that, you mentioned but so many people say they're not worried and those worry questions i think what we're seeing there is people are answering those questions a little bit as good partisans if i'm a republican i know the president is saying go back you know free michigan do these things i i as a republican fall in line with my party
1: that's interesting so what we may be seeing though are people telling you um yeah, I, I'm not that worried about it. and 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 I want stores to open, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be flocking to restaurants or getting on an airplane anytime
3: soon. That's right. Or just a principled position of, I don't think the government should tell me that I can't mm. do X, y, and Z. So I wish they wouldn't tell me. But at the same time, boy, i don't I'm not going to go do X, y, and Z. I don't want to get sick. So there's not really an inconsistency. In holding those two positions. Hmm. And so what do you think this tells us, if anything, about
1: how people are going to react as these states open up, right? That there is now, quote unquote, more freedom to do things. What's a better way to measure whether or not people feel like they want to do those things or they will go back to doing things the way they did?
3: I think a lot of people want to do things. The question is, as you said, will they? And I think our data suggests that people are going to be cautious. People will go to the dentist. They say they'll go to dinner at a friend's house. And when I say, you know, they will, um, Democrats less than Republicans on average across all of these things. But even something like going to dinner at a friend's house, 70% of Republicans say they would probably or definitely do that, 50%. Of Democrats and independents. That's pretty much the highest activity that we see people saying they'll return to. So you study
1: the impact of the economy on elections. And again, pre COVID, the discussion was really focused on whether a good economy is a more important factor in President Trump's re-election chances than, say, other factors, like how people feel about him personally. Now we're going to test another theory, which is, is a really bad economy? In this case, we may be looking at double-digit unemployment going into an election. Also, uh, could that be the determinant as to whether Trump gets re-elected? How, how are you putting this into your own modeling, but also as a political scientist, how are you grappling with
3: this? In normal circumstances, historically speaking, this would be a very bad situation for an incumbent president uh, seeking reelection. And so by all measures, Trump should pay a price. The thing that I think about is in 2016, the Democrats had a slowly growing economy, Kind of the same slowly growing economy they had in 2012 when Barack Obama won. In 2016, the Democrats got more votes, lost the Electoral College. But what happened in that campaign was Trump was able to take that slowly growing economy and really change the focus of the election off of that and onto these, what um, I like to call, identity-inflected topics, and he turned the economy into one of those identity-inflected topics. So it wasn't so much, are you worried about losing your job? It was, are you worried about losing your job to people who are coming here illegally, undocumented workers, and don't deserve your job? And so he was able to tap into these pre-existing attitudes that a lot of people have, about deservingness and about identities. And so he racialized the good economy. And what I think is, could he do the same thing to the bad economy? Um, And I think he probably can. And I think there are things about COVID and that is linked to the economy that he will be able to link to identity issues. And he's already demonstrated that that's a very powerful way to win a presidential election.
1: Well, Lynn Favrick, thank you once again for helping us navigate this really unprecedented time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. At the end of April, Georgia became one of the first states to start easing restrictions associated with the ongoing coronavirus pandemic.
2: We will allow gyms, fitness centers, bowling alleys, body art studios, barbers, cosmetologists, hair designers, nail care artists, and massage therapists to reopen their doors.
1: These are among the businesses allowed to resume activities with some modifications. Now, mayors of cities like Atlanta and Savannah expressed concern with the governor's decision. And even President Trump, who's been pushing for governors to reopen their states, said he thought the state's governor was moving too quickly. You know what? Maybe you wait a little bit longer till you get into a phase two. To date, the state has reported almost 40,000 cases and about 1,700 deaths. Recent polling indicates that just under 40% of Georgians approve of how Governor Kemp is handling the pandemic, and two-thirds believe that the state was easing restrictions too fast. It's been almost a month since the state started lifting restrictions, so I wanted to understand how Georgia residents are weighing their options. I checked in with Andra Gillespie, political science professor at Emory University.
4: I think we need more data and that Georgia might be one case, you know, you know, amongst 50 cases where we get to see what the impacts are about the Mm -hmm. timing of reopening based on the available data. So if Georgia proves to have declining cases as a result of an early reopening when other states are seeing an increase in their cases after reopening that can't be traced to other things, then you can't use Georgia as the model for how to proceed with a reopening under these types of conditions. Georgia could potentially be an outlier in this case. You know, as a Georgian, I'm thankful that we haven't seen an increase in cases, but Nobody knew, nobody had a crystal ball to predict that this was going to happen. And so, you know, I still would argue that the reopening um, was a little bit premature. Um, and so we can't necessarily sort of, you know, rust on our laurels of the fact that people haven't um, gotten sick up to this point. We should just be thankful um, that that's happened. And I think the other thing that's also important is, you know, there is some evidence based on cell phone data, that a lot of people uh, came in from other states uh, to take advantage of Georgia's reopening. If we're seeing an increase in cases in neighboring states like Alabama, for instance, I think we have to ask the question if we have proper contact tracing in place about whether or not uh, one state's more lax reopening actually has a ripple effect in terms of cases that we see in other states. I don't know that, but these are Hmm. just questions that need to be asked uh, before Anybody takes a victory lap.
1: So that's the thing. People are having to interpret information and data, but how they interpret it also will have a meaningful impact on whether they decide to like go back to normal or decide I don't feel comfortable sending my kids to school.
4: Well, yeah, I mean, but I think people's attitudes towards science and people's attitudes towards experts in general uh, was already informing what their mm-hmm. behaviors were going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the question is for those people who are potentially persuadable, right? Have people lost confidence um, amongst experts, you know, if the president is continually maligning experts? Or do you not trust numbers, uh, you know, that uh, maybe don't confirm your, your pre-existing biases. Mm-hmm. Like those things people are already bringing to the table when they're interpreting the numbers. So they may not be looking at whether or not numbers are backdated or the specific types of definitions for certain terms and operationalizations of numbers that I might look at or that an epidemiologist might look at who actually understands that stuff better than I do. Uh, but they do kind of get a sense of do I think I'm being flim here? Does it look like there's a lot of hand waving going on that's going to make me see Say that I shouldn't trust what's going on. And then there's just, you know, the general market. If your neighborhood isn't reopening, so I live in a neighborhood where I can see kind of where businesses are opening um, and I can see which businesses are open and which businesses aren't opening. So if I'm in a neighborhood that's still largely shut down, right, then, you know, I'm probably going to curtail my behavior in some way, shape or form. And I may not be relying on experts to, to make those calls. It could also be that if you know people who have been affected by the virus, right, that's also going to, to go your behavior and you'll make your own decisions based on what you sort of personally see in the world around you.
1: So in Georgia, as we've seen in so many other states, the virus is affecting different groups of people in different ways. And we know from reports at the end of April that eighty percent of hospitalized coronavirus patients in Georgia were African American. Is this inequality here? still prevalent. And what is being done in Georgia to address this?
4: We have seen an increase in uh, trying to test and send marketing messages to communities of color to make sure that they have access to testing. So, Mm -hmm. you know, part of Governor Kemp's coronavirus task force does include uh, people from the civil rights community and very prominent African-Americans who have marketing um, campaigns, you know, designed to encourage people to give masks. We've seen things in in counties with large African-American populations like DeKalb County, for instance, trying to provide free coronavirus uh, uh, toolkit for citizens that so they get hand sanitizer and they get face masks. Uh, We're seeing stepped-up efforts where um, historically African-American churches um, are being enlisted to help provide free testing in communities that are largely minority. Um, We see efforts. One of the hot spots is around Gainesville, in particular around a poultry processing plant, um, which employs a lot of Latino residents. And so we see stepped-up efforts uh, to reach out to those communities to make sure that people are getting access to testing, um, that there are, are folks who are advocating for people making sure that they're getting information in their language. Uh, And so, we were seeing those kinds of efforts, that's great in terms of trying to handle mitigation that doesn't address the underlying structural issues that made people of color more likely to be susceptible to this disease. So we haven't addressed the question yet of why people of color are disproportionately employed um, in low paying service sector jobs that would one give them minimal access to healthcare um, and then also uh, would make them more likely to have to be able to go to work. Um, Uh, If we think about sort of hospitalizations being uh, related to cases where you would expect that people would be more likely to have acute cases of COVID-19 and the comorbidities that are associated with that, we have to ask the question about, did these people have access to to good healthcare and health insurance before they got sick? Did they have underlying health conditions that would have been exacerbated by poverty? Those are issues that we're gonna have to tackle well after this pandemic is over. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is the literal manifestation. Mm -hmm. of what inequality does.
1: So earlier this week, there was a story in the Washington Post about people in an Atlanta suburb returning to a shopping center, and they were kind of going back to normal, getting their nails done, grabbing drinks, some not wearing masks. Does this suggest that Georgia might see more than one Georgia? In other words, places that are going to go back to normal and places that won't. And if so, is that even sustainable?
4: one of the things that struck me is I've gone grocery shopping. So this was actually in late March when I was having a terrible time finding toilet paper. It took me three <laughs> weeks to toilet paper in a grocery store. Um, and so I went to stores that I hadn't been to before. And I remember just being shocked by the number of children that I saw in a grocery store. Um, and, you know, part of me wanted to be very critical of that going, why are you bringing your kids to, to the grocery store? In some instances, people may not have had a choice, right? They didn't have childcare. There wasn't a second parent in the house to be able to bring people out and so you realize the 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 risks that look reckless to middle class and affluent people um are um one being done by well-intentioned people who really just have no other choice and i think we need to sort of think about that before we actually start, you know, tis- tisking, tisking and judging people um, about what's going on. But yeah, I mean, you know, there's also certain certainly the element of just rebellion and people can't tell me what to do and cabin fever and it being nice outside and kind of wanting to, you know, just go out and, and, and try to reclaim um, part of one's humanity. And so I think that there's some people who've just taken, taken really calculated risks.
1: Well, Andre Gillespie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Please stay safe.
4: Thank you. You too.
2: Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Part of the reasoning behind lifting stay-at-home orders in Georgia was to help with the state's mounting unemployment problem. To date, about 40% of the state's workers have filed for unemployment. But until people feel comfortable about moving around, it's unlikely we'll see the economy bounce back. Many community leaders have found that they would rather wait and see how the state fares with coronavirus cases than rush to reopen. That's especially true for the city of Athens, where the economy relies on local universities including the University of Georgia. David Bradley is the president of the Athens Chamber of Commerce. I talked to him about what he's been hearing from the business community over the last month and how they are approaching the reopening.
2: Well, particularly with the business community in Athens, it's, it's very difficult. Uh, we're a community of, well, for all practical purposes, Amy, 140,000. Uh, but we have four, four colleges and universities right. in the community, largely, of course, the University of Georgia. But... Amongst those colleges, we have 45,000 students. Uh, So for all practical purposes, in normal economic downturns, college communities like Athens Mm -hmm. are in some ways insulated from the ebb of the economic economic downturn because we have 45,000 captive consumers until you don't and so this has been very very i mean this has been very difficult for the for the local business community uh but but the community has really largely particularly the business community understands the severity of the pandemic and the need to be safe and healthy and so we really haven't had a great deal of discord uh from the business community now when the governor opened up or or at least we. Uh, you know, on April 20, uh, 24th, when he opened up gyms and, or suggested that gyms and fitness centers and tattoo parlors could open, um, you know uh, that that uh, it was uh, there was some angst about, gosh, are we are we opening up too soon? But Amy, literally, you know that it, it just it still comes down to the business owner deciding: a, can I open up in a healthy and safe fashion? And more importantly, if I do, will I be able to bring business in that will be self-sustaining? Mm-hmm. And so we've, we've we, in Athens, uh, particularly in Athens, we, yet, we still haven't opened. I mean, our business community is still very cautiously hopeful, uh, and we haven't seen a whole lot of businesses open up.
1: I'm also curious where you... Other business owners are looking to, to sort of gauge their comfort level with opening or it, doing things that they normally did. Are they trusting the data that they are seeing? The governor has uh, been putting data out. The, the government itself has its own site. I know that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution has put up a site that tracks cases. So are folks looking to the data Or are they looking to their own sort of gut, their own feelings of safety, the community that they know, the people that they know, to gauge whether it's time to open or not?
2: Well, it's a great question. I believe that people are paying attention to the data. But I believe that it's secondary to the gut feel that they have of do are are there do I see enough people that are walking around or that are that are interested? Or do I feel like that the, uh, the, the traffic is going to be solid enough to where it's going to make it worth my while to open up? So I, I believe that the data is important. And I mm-hmm. do understand that there's some conflicting data that's been that has been that has surfaced. Uh, fortunately, here in Athens, we have uh, two extraordinary hospitals that have been super communicative uh, with the business community as to what's transpiring. So we believe that our local data is is relatively solid. But I think that the business owners, for the most part, this is a, to, to open up or not to open up is really more related to how you feel. Can you open up in a safe and healthy fashion such that you're protecting yourself, your employees, and your customers? And when you open up art, you have to make the determination, is it, am I going to have the traffic that is going to help me be self-sustaining?
1: As you pointed out, University of Georgia, huge driver of everything in Athens. What are you hearing about the school opening up to students in the fall? And if they don't, if they're still (laughs) online classes, can Athens survive without the football games and without the people coming in every weekend?
2: Well, I'll answer the second question. First, yeah. Athens will survive. This is a, this is a community that has unbridled passion for each other, uh, an unbridled passion for everything that makes Athens great, which is extraordinary music, great food, great entertainment, but an incredible spirit of, of community. So we will survive. Unfortunately, that, that it, we might look a lot different a year from now than we do now if school is, if, if the university, for whatever reason, isn't able to, uh, to open up on uh, a timely fashion. You know, let's even look at, at, at what might happen if they don't open up for another six months or a year. Then we're going to look distinctly different, but Athens will survive. The university, we, we have weekly conversations with university uh, officials, and at this point, there's they are uh, there are several contingencies that are outstanding, uh, or our uh, contingency plans. But the the plan that is at the forefront is to open up in a timely fashion in August, uh, and so we hope that that's the case, right? And so I believe, and this is the the law according to David Bradley, so it's. Not you know universally followed and not rarely do I follow it, but uh, I believe that anything it's so important that to to get our economy uh, really moving like we have traditionally known it it's so important to have those students get back here on a timely basis as quickly as possible and anything that we do that might inhibit those students coming in on a timely basis we have to be super cautious about doing that because it's It's that having those students come back, I think, is the cornerstone to our local economy reviving.
1: Well, David Bradley, I wish you the best. Please stay safe.
2: All right, Amy. Thank you so much.
1: And we heard from a few business owners from Athens, Georgia.
3: This
5: is Alicia Brasher with Escape the Space, a local escape room company in Athens, Georgia. While sheltering in place, we decided to revamp our business and create live escapes for groups to play from home called Zoom Room Escapes. Deciding when to reopen has been challenging, with seemingly competing information at times from the federal government, state government, and local officials. Deciding which information to trust and whose advice to take has been a daily task. We've poured over charts, ordinances, and news articles, watched briefings, and webinars. In the end, we chose to look to local officials, local health professionals, and the CDC to determine when was the right time to reopen, and we feel that time has come.
3: My name is Spencer Fry. I'm the Executive Director of Athens Area Habitat for Humanity. Uh, Reopening retail stores while keeping both employees and customers safe is a challenge. While some stores seem to be opening with few or no precautions, we will open in stages with all recommended precautions in place, including required masks, hand washing stations, disinfectant stations, and changing bathroom fixtures to no-handle, automatic soap and water dispensing, and of course, social distancing.
1: Aside from opening businesses and allowing people to return to work, a critical piece of getting our economy back up and running is reopening the schools. Here's Colorado Governor Jared Polis speaking last weekend on Fox News Sunday.
4: I'm really confident that uh, it's a critical part of our society and schools need to function. They are going to function. It's also going to be somewhat of a hybrid environment, meaning there might be times during the year if there's an outbreak at a school that it has to convert to online for a period of weeks uh, until it's reasonably safe to return to school. But by and large, I think across our state and across our nation, kids are going to be able to return to school in the fall. It's just not going to look like any other school year.
1: But just what schools will look like and how they will function is still very much in the works in states across the country. Katie Anthes is the Commissioner of Education for the state of Colorado. She's one of a team of people working on a toolkit to provide guidance for districts in her state.
5: Our number one goal is to open schools in the fall and have as much in-person learning as possible but we know that we have to be thoughtful about planning for multiple contingencies, depending on where the virus is in the state of Colorado. So we are planning for things uh, like smaller group size in school, uh, possible blended learning models, which means that sometimes the students might come in for in-person learning with their teachers, and then sometimes they might still be at home doing some remote learning that will give us the opportunity to have fewer students in a school building, which will allow us to have more social distancing and put more health and safety precautions in place.
1: Tell us how this works though, in terms of the school calendar, how much of a role do you play? You are the commissioner for the state of Colorado versus a local school district in determining what their school year and whether they're doing it remotely or not would be?
5: Well, in Colorado, our school districts have a lot of choice and decision-making and how they wanna run their school calendar, their school schedule. We do have requirements at the state level of how many days you have to be in, in instruction or how many hours you have to provide instruction. But other than that, our districts get to decide how they get those hours in. So, there's a lot of choice there. So, for some of our small rural districts that maybe aren't seeing as much impact of the coronavirus, they may not have very many changes at all. They may have few enough students and they may have enough space um, that their school year won't look much different at all. Uh, but we may have some more large urban districts that have uh, high population densities that maybe maybe the virus is still in that community. And so they need to be able to pivot between in-person learning and remote learning at a moment's notice. So it will look really differently across our state. And we hope to provide clear data to all of our regions so that they can make really good decisions about what
1: So let's take an example of either you're in Denver or Jefferson County, which is right outside a big suburban area right outside of Denver. I'm sure you have a very big school population there. How would you be able to really pivot quickly, given how important, uh, you know, having some consistency is going to be for parents?
5: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And we, we hear the the stress and anxiety from our our parents and our coworkers, and we're we're dealing with that at, at our own workplace, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, with with parents with small children and trying to trying to do their job. I know you all are too. What we're trying to do, and we will be providing some a toolkit to our districts here uh, very shortly. But we are trying to. Have our districts be able to put plans in place that they can share with their parents now, get feedback over the summer, and then say, this will be our plan moving forward so that parents can plan around that. So I do think that our bigger districts are really, I've seen many of them uh, release feedback surveys to their families to say, what would help you to make sure you had consistency? This is thinking even about creative solutions like, well, maybe we have younger students come back for the in-person learning, but we decrease the number of students by by having the older students um, at home because that's a little bit easier for parents to manage, but Largely, districts are making those choices with feedback from their families and their communities.
1: Seems as if another challenge for these school districts is the fact that the economy has obviously been battered, not just in Colorado, but in every state in the country. And that's going to mean more budget cuts likely, um, which could mean fewer teachers, which could mean fewer school days, which could also mean you know, maybe a planned construction project is put on hold and there aren't enough, uh, there's, there aren't enough buildings, there's not enough space to space uh, children out, even in, under the best circumstances. How do you see schools being able to balance that?
5: Yeah, it's, it's a really difficult position um, our schools are in. They're, if you can think about, they're essentially planning for, you know, three to five different learning models for next year, because we don't quite know what it's all going to look like. So they're putting in, you know, multiple contingencies, which is, you know, quadrupling the amount of planning time they need to do uh, in the midst of, you know, preparing for um, probably pretty pretty extensive budget cuts. Um, we were, we are expecting serious budget cuts in Colorado. Um, mm-hmm. Our governor was able to announce um, 510 million more dollars to go to the K through 12 system. That money is being delivered to them this week. That will help them with some of the immediacy of the coronavirus situations like do they need to get all of their students' laptops? Do they need to purchase more Wi-Fi hotspots? Do they need to provide more training for teachers in remote learning environments? Um, so they will have an infusion of support right now, but we are concerned about the long run um, and and what that will look like for the future. But they are—I'm very proud of our districts here. They're being creative and innovative and they're problem solving and they're figuring out how to make it work because they are so committed to making sure that our students are getting an education and making sure parents and families are taken care of so those parents and families can go back to work. Well, I wish you
1: the very best of luck. Please stay safe in Colorado.
5: Thank you. You too. It was a pleasure talking with you.
1: Katie Anthis is Commissioner of Education for the state of Colorado. And here's one more thing from me. All of us are desperate to get our lives back to some sense of normalcy. We wanna know if we can send the kids back to school this fall, hang out at our favorite restaurant, hug our parents. Those of us in the politics business wanna know how this crisis has impacted perceptions of this president and his chances of reelection. But polling has provided mixed messages. Yes, voters have soured on Trump's handling of the COVID-19 crisis over the last few weeks. But at the same time, even as unemployment numbers climb, voters continue to give the president good marks on his handling of the economy. So which of these things, the way he's dealt with individual issues like healthcare, COVID or the economy, the way he's conducted himself as president, will be the most important for swing voters in November? There's a lot we still don't know about how this pandemic will unfold. What we do know is that President Trump's style and behavior will be the same no matter what. It's why I think perceptions of Trump as president are more important than opinions of how he's handling certain issues. Can Trump do the job versus do you want him in that job for another four years? All right, that's all for us today. Hope you get a semblance of a holiday weekend. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Big shout out to Claire McKean and Debbie Daughtry for being at the WNYC studios this week, helping us get you the show and making everything sound great. With them there is Jay Cowett. He's our director, editor, and sound designer. Lee Hill is our executive producer. If you missed anything, check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can call us anytime at 877-8MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. See you next week.